You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. We are going to talk about China today, and our guest is Colonel Grant Newsham. He is a retired U.S. Marine who served in the Indo-Pacific for decades, including in intelligence and liaison roles, and was instrumental in establishing Japan's amphibious force. And he is the author of the new book, When China Attacks, Warning to America. And I wanted to book Mr. Newsham after I saw President Z shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. And I think all of the concern, I've gotten so many requests, Colonel, from people wanting to know about BRICS and Taiwan and how afraid should we be? And I've done one program on Taiwan where we talked about how difficult it would actually be to attack. So I'm interested in hearing from somebody with a military background and maybe a little more tactical Let's start with Taiwan. Why is Taiwan of specific interest to the Chinese? And how realistic is it, in your view, that they will, China will attack Taiwan at some point in the next few years? I think it is actually likely that China will use force sooner rather than later if Taiwan does not voluntarily, obviously under coercion, agree to be a part of communist China. Now, why is it important for the Chinese? There's a couple of ways to look at this. And the first one is it's a military operational perspective. Taiwan sits right in the middle of what is called the first island chain. And if you look at a map of Asia, that'll explain a lot. The, the first island chain is a chain of islands that goes from Japan to Taiwan to the Philippines down to Malaysia. And it effectively blocks the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, from easy access to the Pacific. Uh, and it's, if you think of it like a castle wall, Taiwan is in the middle of it. If you take that, you've breached the castle wall. And that gives you really free access to the Pacific. And also, if China swings up to the north, it can surround Japan. It swings down to the south, it can cut off Australia from the rest of Asia, from the United States. So operationally, from a military perspective, it's really valuable for the Chinese, and they've known this. They've talked about it, written about it, and on those grounds alone, it's a key objective. But also consider the political, the psychological effect of Taiwan coming under Chinese control. And what the message is that the United States military could not keep 23 million free people from Chinese domination, shows American economic and financial pressure couldn't do it, and U.S. nuclear weapons couldn't stop the Chinese. Now, who on earth is going to protect, respect or rely on American promises after that? So those are some pretty solid reasons from China's perspective for taking Taiwan. Plus, Xi Jinping, the Chinese dictator, has said uh, that he's going to get it one way or the other. And in this sort of regime, there's not a whole lot of downside to not living up to your promises. So this is a very attractive target, juicy target. I don't think the semiconductors on Taiwan are all that important to the Chinese. I think those are gravy at most. But militarily and politically, psychologically, it's immensely important. Now, could the Chinese successfully launch an invasion of Taiwan? I think they could. Analysts will differ. But they have been practicing it for 
pretty close to 50 years now, and they've built up a military which does have the capability to move tens of thousands of troops across the Taiwan Strait. And it's not just a, a sort of a reprisal of the D-Day invasion in Normandy, but it's going to involve huge missile barrages that can hit the targets that they aimed at, cover most of Taiwan. It's going to cut it off electronically, isolate it from the internet, and you're going to have Helleborn, airborne troops landing. You're going to have just the Chinese Navy and the Air Force all over the place. And they're going to hit Taiwan very hard, very fast, and keep the Americans from getting in. That's what their plan would be. As, as I said, could they do it? I think they could. And the Chinese military is not something to dismiss. But I hear that a lot, that amphibious operations are the most difficult military operation there is. And there's a certain condescension towards the Chinese when you hear that statement. So I would take China very seriously, both in terms of what they intend to do, but also their capabilities. But of course, the last thing I'll say is that they would prefer to get Taiwan without fighting. And that's why Taiwan has been the target of immense Chinese political warfare and subversion for decades. In fact, there's a substantial fifth column that is already in Taiwan. And that would be part and parcel of any assault that is launched. But in the meantime, the effect of this Chinese political warfare has been to weaken Taiwan's resolve to wear down its potential resistance. So we had someone on that was not a military expert, but they were saying that we shouldn't worry about this because it's not like they're going to take it easily. You, Everyone thought that Ukraine could be taken easily and look what happened there. There's just a limited amount of beaches and the Americans have provided so many weapons for so many years to Taiwan to fortify the actual island. And so we're talking about the military option first, but I'm more interested in the political warfare because that's an interesting angle that I hadn't thought about. Because are we too focused on the military invasion and what will America do as almost like a psychological, and maybe this is China pushing it, which is part of what you talk about in your book, like to demoralize the Americans, we're going to invade this island and there's nothing you're going to do about it because we know you're not going to do anything about it. Do you see the military invasion as maybe a misdirection then? You do always, when somebody's looking or everybody's looking at one thing, it's always good to look at where they're not looking. And the Chinese look at the political warfare as very much a form of warfare, but they also at the same time have built up a conventional military capability. So they're actually, they're hoping that Taiwan just gives up and also that America convinces itself that Taiwan cannot be defended. That's wrong. But if you can get your enemy and it's to think that, you've done pretty well and it's without fighting. So that you have to look at the two in one sense separately, but at the same time, the Chinese see them as part of a whole. With the Chinese theory of warfare, that the kinetic warfare, the shooting, that is the last step, if it even has to happen, because you have worn down your enemy psychologically economically, financially, and mentally, you have demoralized them to the point that they cannot put up an effective resistance, even if they wanted to. So that the political warfare angle doesn't get the attention it deserves, in my opinion. And you do see that much of the debate over Taiwan focuses on the idea of Chinese ships coming across the Taiwan Strait, and can they get ashore? Could they defeat Taiwan militarily? But they, as you, you suggested, that's only half the equation. 
And the Chinese see this very much as a war that has already started, just as they see the war against us as one that has already started. We just choose not to recognize it. But the end result is to, in this case, take Taiwan. And the, the use of force is, it'd probably be Beijing's second choice, but that doesn't mean they won't do it if they have to. All right. So I'm 39. I was born in 83. I really came of age in 91, 92 when I started loosely paying attention to the news. I grew up in a post 9-11 world, but my entire adult life, the American military has controlled the seas uh, and everything seems great to me. So I don't understand what China wants. So why are they upset? What do they want? Why would they, you say they've started a war on us. What exactly is the, I understood why bin Laden was mad, but what did the Chinese want? Well, the Chinese ultimately <clears throat> want to dominate us and if necessary to destroy us. The whole idea of America and the ideas behind it are just anathema to the Chinese Communist Party. And Xi Jinping has said that. It's well worth reading some of his speeches where he has very clearly said that these America, these Western values, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of everything, are not something China can live with. And as I say, if the Chinese do telegraph their punches, and it's worth reading those speeches that Xi has given, but also it didn't start with him, that this has been the Chinese thinking for an awfully long time, pretty much from Mao Zedong's day. But also I'd like to touch on something you just said, this idea that the American Navy, the American military just dominates the world and nobody can challenge us. Unfortunately, we've given the Chinese about 20 years to catch up, and in some areas, they actually surpass us. And that's unfortunate because we did, so too many people underestimated them, did not want to take on the Chinese, and they, they could never be our equals. Once again, there's a condescension involved there. And just one example, you know the South China Sea, the sea between really Chinese mainland and that first island chain, pretty much. And the American aircraft carriers go in there, American ships go in there, and they sail wherever they want. But when they go in there, if the Chinese want, they could put 10 ships to match every ship the Americans send in. The U.S. ships that go in are within range of Chinese anti-ship missile batteries on the mainland, both ground-launched, plus the Chinese Air Force it can launch anti-ship missiles. The Chinese Navy can as well. So if you're an American skipper in the South China Sea and you've got two dozen anti-ship missiles coming at you at supersonic speed, and you've got about 12 seconds to respond, you might think the Chinese are, are equal. And the Chinese have, in the last decade or so, every year, they have turned out about seven ships for every one we launch. So the Chinese Navy is substantially bigger than ours. The Chinese do have global ambitions for their military, and that's why they are setting up a network of ports and airfields to which they will have do have access or will have access so the Chinese military can operate globally just the way the American one does as well. So the when you look at the Chinese military equation, look at that the military balance, and Department of De Defense puts out some pretty good summaries every year on this. You read it, and if you know something about military matters, it one, it makes your skin crawl because you see that they have become a formidable force, which is in some respects, in some place, more than a match for us. We still have a global advantage on them, but that is, is diminishing. So we have, unfortunately, we've let our guard down, thinking that we wouldn't need a military because nobody's ever beaten us. Well, except for the Vietnamese and the Koreans, 
and looks like the Taliban. Nobody's ever beaten us in a big war for a good long while. And we, as I say, this was some people dropped the ball and they were aided and abetted in this by Wall Street and the U.S. business class as well. In what way? The idea was that if we help the Chinese develop their economy, help them become a stronger nation, that they will eventually liberalize, become a freer, fairer society, sort of like a giant Canada, or Canada used to be at least. And that was the thinking, accommodate China. There was an assistant secretary of defense, I believe, a fellow named Joseph Nye, who was a professor, was an Ivy League professor. And he, when he was in office or in his position in the it was around the 1990s, he said, our approach was, if you treat China like an enemy, you will make them one. And implicitly, if you accommodate them, appease them, they might become nice. And that pretty much typified the U.S. approach to it. But also Wall Street saw that they could make a ton of money in China with somebody else's money, of course. So what they have done is they have provided China for decades with the hundreds of billions of dollars in convertible currency that the Chinese need have needed to develop their economy, to build their military. One thing that rarely gets mentioned is that the Chinese currency is not freely convertible, which means that nobody much wants it overseas. Think of it like a high school fair. If you go and you buy these tickets, you can use the tickets to go on the ride and to buy cotton candy and the like. But if you go off the campus, nobody wants it. And that is like the Chinese money. So for them to fund things, the Belt and Road Initiative, to buy Australian iron ore to build make steel to build the Chinese Navy. They have to pay in dollars. If they want to pay off an Ivy League professor, they, he's going to demand payment in dollars as well. But we have provided them with this convertible currency. And that has been really what has funded the Chinese Communist Party for decades. The U.S. business community has fallen over itself to get into China, thinking that there was a ton of money to be made when in actual fact, uh, over time, a country, a company will only be as successful in China and for as long as the Chinese Communist Party says. And this is a lesson that just about every company that's gone into China has learned or will learn. And Elon Musk is going to learn this eventually as well. So when I say that Wall Street and our business class have helped the Chinese build up their national power, their military, this military that is more than a match for us, in some cases, and is unfortunately is heading in the wrong direction from our perspective. We very much have funded that. And we provided the technology, the foreign investment that has allowed the Chinese Communist Party to paper over some huge fissures in their system. And it's always worth remembering as well that in China, about 600 million people live on $5 a day. Now, you will always hear, however, of the Chinese Communist Party. It raised million, hundreds of millions of people from poverty. That doesn't, that doesn't mention that they also put 1.4 billion into poverty in the first place. But when you've still got 600 million on 500, five bucks a day, that is not a hugely successful system. But if every year you're getting that kind of financial input from the West, from the Japanese, from the Americans, that it allows a regime to look a lot more successful than it otherwise would be. I just finished a biography on in Japan, which is super nerdy. But when he was assassinated, I was like, why is he significant? But he seemed to understand the threat of China and the need for changing Japanese society to take this threat a little more seriously. 
the constitution at one point said we can't have a standing military. We're relying basically on the United States. Can you talk about how Japan, I know this soft script kind of from the book, you know, given your, you've been to Japan and I haven't. So I'm interested in kind of hearing how Japan has dealt with this because it's such a more imminent close threat to them and what has changed in Japan over the last 20 years as China has basically shown its hand that it's not necessarily a friend to the free world. Sure. I actually lived in Japan for 25 years and perfect directly with the Chinese, the Japanese military for a long time. What Abe did, he really, he wasn't the only one who thought these things, but he was prominent. And he did have a sense that China was a threat, tried to wake up Japan and also the and also the Americans. He tried to get them to take Japan seriously, excuse me, Japan seriously, but also the Chinese threat seriously. The Americans didn't catch on till a, a lot later than it should have been. But Abe say, was sounding the alarm, and he did start in motion this chain of events in Japan that got Japan to at least get serious about getting serious for its own defense. Because for decades, Japan, one, they thought they didn't face any enemies. Uh, and because they were a peace-loving nation, nothing much was going on in Northeast Asia except maybe the North Koreans. And they also thought if there is a problem, the Americans will take care of it. So Japan it had a military, despite what the Constitution says. On paper, it's a powerful military, but as a practical matter, it has some very serious shortcomings. For example, the Japanese military, they didn't have a radio with which the three services can talk to each other. So it has a good Navy, Air Force, and ground force, but they couldn't do joint operations, combined operations. They still can't do them very well. They've gotten a little bit better. So what Abe did was at least wake up Japan. He got some laws changed so that Japan could take commonsensical steps to defend itself, could work more closely with the Americans. And he started this chain of events that got Japan to build up at least to some extent, military relationships with the Australians, with the Philippines, with several European nations, things that would never have happened, say, 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, just impossible. And now you have a Japan that is at least trying to defend itself. It announced that it's going to double defense spending over the next five years, which is a good thing, but it doesn't know what to buy. It doesn't know what to spend it on. Another good example is the Chinese, the Japanese military it misses its recruitment targets by about 20-25% a year, and that's been the case for a long time. So you can imagine the problems that has caused. And th there's no, it's going to be hard for Japan to buy itself a national defense, but at least it knows that it needs to take some, some, some more useful steps, and it's going moving in the right direction. And it is more of a, an ally, a better ally for the Americans as well. So there's been at least a huge psychological change in Japan. And I think Abe, Mr. Abe deserves an awful lot of credit for that. Uh, his successors have continued this. And some people would say that the current prime minister, Kishida, actually has a better sense of what Japan needs defense-wise than, uh, than Abe did. Uh, but that's debatable. But he, it's, Japan does see a need to defend itself. It's been afraid. It has understood the Japanese threat for a long time. You used to hear from the Japanese military, and this was 20 years ago, the expression, Taiwan's defense is Japan's defense. 
Uh, and now you're starting to hear it all over Japan. But the Americans didn't quite recognize how concerned Japan was with the Chinese. I once saw the was the head of the U.S. Army in the Pacific absolutely just belittle and try to humiliate a Japanese general officer who tried to explain the Chinese threat. Uh, it was one of the more distasteful things I've seen an American officer do. That, this was about 10 years ago that I saw it happen, but it shows just how the Americans couldn't believe that China was that much of a threat, even the U.S. military couldn't. But Abe, he did transform Japan in many respects. Will Japan actually develop the concrete military capabilities that it's capable of and that it needs? That's still an open question. So I am, you're on a libertarian podcast. <laughs> I am a libertarian because of Ron Paul back in 08. I was firmly for the Iraq war and then I was very against it. And I have lived my whole life as a non-interventionist and am firmly anti-war. But I wanted to have you on because I read through the book. I saw your arguments as to why China is a threat. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically just for my own doubts from somebody that has thought this through on a much deeper scale than I have. First, in non-interventionist circles, we often talk about how, Jap how China is fragile and that we really shouldn't worry about the Chinese threat because of the fragility of the economy of China and how it's a house of cards. America really is still dominant in their economy and we can pull out and collapse them and we have a lot of control and people are just fear-mongering about the threat. What do you make of that assessment of China's fragility and that being a reason not to worry about either defending Taiwan or just the Chinese threat in general? As I said, with Taiwan, if that goes under and the Chinese take it, there's nobody on earth that is going to believe an American promise. And you will find that Asia turns red overnight. Every country in the region will cut the best deal it's ca it can with China. The Japanese will resist it, but they won't have much they can do about it. The Australians, the same thing. But everyone else is going to basically sidle up to China. And America's phone calls aren't going to get listened to at that point, and we're going to be pushed out of Asia very quickly. But that question about the fragility of the Chinese system, I agree that these sorts of regimes are often very brittle. And if you were to take away the constant inflow of tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of convertible currency, US dollars, into China, if you were to take away the US, the Western investment in China, then you really would see the problems in the weaknesses in that system. But if we don't stop that, it looks like a stable enough system. But and it'll get by. The Chinese can endure an awful lot of punishment, far more than we could, I'm afraid. And you know, sometimes looking back at some history is something that, that I would do. And I would look at Nazi Germany. Its economy was an absolute mess. It was genuinely a house of cards. And yet for these sorts of nasty regimes that are bent on expansion, domination, power, ultimately, to get rid of them, uh, it causes immense heartbreak. Think of all the trouble that the Germans caused. Despite the fact their economy was a house of cards, it was an oppressive regime. And look at how close they came to actually winning. These, and these were people who invaded Russia with 50% or more of their transport being horse-drawn. And think of how hard a fight that was. Unfortunately, the Chinese are probably better uh, than the Germans. But this, these sorts of regimes, that to get them out of, to 
get rid of them. There's just immense misery and heartache, even for us and a lot of other people too involved in it. I would say in Taiwan's case, there's always a sort of callousness that, that I simply don't have where people say they can't be helped. It's a little island. It's 23 million people so close to China. We just can't do anything. It's, oh, it's unfortunate. Just let them go. Let them come under enslavement by a regime that takes organs out of prisoners while they're still alive, that has concentration camps, black prisons, that is as repressive a regime as there's ever been. Just let them go. And very often you could take the, if you look at it and you look at some of the commentary that was being said in the 30s, the late 30s, if you were to switch the words Nazi China for Nazi Germany and Taiwan for Czechoslovakia, you wouldn't know what was written when. There's this idea that somehow you can pay off a regime like the Chinese Communist Party and that they'll be happy, they'll be satisfied. But the Chinese view, unfortunately, they see Taiwan as just a starter. But as I said, I'm just not the kind of guy that can just tut and tell 23 million people to accept enslavement. It's not something that, that I can do. What would you say to Americans who just have the view of not just Taiwan, but so what if Asia goes red? So what if our phone calls don't get returned? What does that really matter to me? Well, the Chinese objective is not just Taiwan. It's not just Asia. It's not just within the first island chain. It is to dominate us and dominate, control us. And if you want to see what it's like, you could go live in Shanghai for a while and say a few bad things about the about Xi Jinping, see what happens to you. Look at those COVID crack, the COVID lockdowns and the way it was enforced in China. Gives you a sense of what things would be like. And with the elements of control that the Chinese have, particularly electronically, you'll find that you're you just you're afraid to say anything. That you you be careful about what you type in an email on the internet. You're practically afraid to even think the wrong thoughts. And that is the kind of pressure that we, we will come under. You will find that the United States does nothing without uh, Chinese approval. They may allow us to live as some sort of a satrap, but at the end of the day, everything the United States does would be Beijing's behest. And that is something that they can enforce, potentially militarily, particularly as they uh, increase their control in outer space, some of their advanced weaponry or things that we don't quite have a match for yet. And... That that is just something that people ought to be afraid of. It it looks like it's something far off, unrealistic. It's there. And what I would suggest, it's really worth doing, actually, is read the Chinese press for a week or two. And just the English translations will be fine. And you will get a very clear sense of what the Chinese have in store for us if they can do it. But they do very much have global objectives. Here And this is well underway. Latin America, most of the nations now have pro-China regimes. As I said, they're building the military infrastructure for for Latin America, Africa, for the PLA to operate. And it is the idea is to surround us, to circle, to encircle us. It's classic guerrilla tactics, actually, by Chinese Chinese standards. But this these, unfortunately, we're not the first smart generation, and the things we're experiencing really are nothing new. These are really problems that mankind and societies have dealt with really since recorded history started. And the Chinese regime is just one in a long line that has threatened the freedom, the independence of a nation and people like us now. 
I remember I, every time this subject comes up, I used to, when I was a baby Reaganite back in the 90s, <laughs> I found this audio recording of his radio interviews. And in one of them, he talks in the mid-70s, early 70s, about the Communist Party in China saying they had two enemies. First, it was the Soviet Union, and then it was the Americans. And however long it takes to bring them down, we're going to do it. And that has always stuck with me with China because it, it doesn't seem like their goal has changed since the 70s. And we've been duped. If you were watching out for political influence, I know it's everyone goes, oh, Joe Biden's bought off by the Chinese and the Democrats are just pro-Chinese. And I, I don't know that I buy that. And then on the other side, oh, Trump's just bought out by the Russians and the Chinese. But I would have to think that political influence... The Nazis had Rockwell. There were a lot of USR influencers. You see it with Russia. It's a little bit more obvious. But when we're consuming our media diet, what should we watch for when it comes to Chinese propaganda and people that may be in their service? Actually, one good example would be when the TikTok CEO was testifying a few weeks ago before Congress. His testimony was... Interesting, only in the sense you wondered if he would say anything that was true. But the more interesting thing was to look behind him. You saw this phalanx of his white or his American lawyers and lobbyists. And these are people doing the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party for a price. And that was the more interesting thing. You read some of these these letters that get full-page advertisements in the Washington Post, the the Wall Street Journal recently, signed by the absolute luminaries of American business, senior government officials, are saying, tone things down with China, get back to normal. China is not an enemy. And if you can get the most influential people in your enemies, in your enemy's country to say these things, to get these this kind of message out, that is an absolute home run from a Chinese perspective. So that is, the, it's called Elite Capture. And I would re- really recommend reading Peter Schweitzer's books. He lays this out. It's a prosecutor's dream as to the, really the American elite. And he names names, plenty of them. And I name some in my book. I actually didn't name all because it couldn't be that long a book. But, and this has been, it, this has been a bipartisan achievement. It's not the Democrats only. There are just as many Republicans who have decided that Chinese money tastes good. So say that this is where they really have succeeded in playing to American vanity, to American greed, just immensely successful. Say in my book, I cite one of these letters that was signed by just its dozens of the most influential Americans, government, business, academia, all of them basically giving the Chinese party line. But we always think that we're so much smarter than anyone who came before us. And, oh, those people who were doing business with Nazi Germany, what were they thinking? Nothing's new. I'd suggest we just even have more of it. But it is that that elite capture. It's called proxy warfare is how the Chinese would look at it. And it's not just in the United States. You do They do it in every country. If you can buy off or get the elites on your side and to think that what they're doing is statesmanlike because it's preventing war or what have you that you have really been very successful. You've had really the success that you would have in winning an actual battle. And to the Chinese, this is a battle, but to us, it's not. With us, until the shooting starts, we don't believe we're actually at war. The Chinese see it very differently. So do you think that uh, 
I want to. My next question was going to be: Do you think war is inevitable? But again, you just exposed the American thinking on it. In that, I've got a friend who's in the military who recommended this book that was written by a couple Chinese generals about asymmetric warfare. I'm blanking on the title. You may know it. Um, Unrestricted warfare. That's it. Yep. And they make everybody in the American military read it. Apparently, I think he said, and it was pretty enlightening in how. The, the Belt and Road Initiative, all of this stuff surrounds us. So do you think, how do you think we ought to proceed? I'm sure you lay that out in the book. I apologize. I didn't get very far into the book before we discussed it, but I am going to read it. So how do you, how do we proceed without a war or is it just inevitable? Graham Allison's analysis is right that we're in the Thucydides trap. The Thucydides trap, there was a sort of a, what you call it, review of his book written by a Princeton University of Pennsylvania professor named Arthur Waldron. It's worth reading. Um, he absolutely tears apart Graham Allison's thesis. I don't think we are destined to war. I think if we keep it up, what we're doing, that we're going to find ourselves in a position where we probably cannot fight. And if we do try to step in, uh, say, to defend Taiwan, that we would have, we better get used to losing five, ten thousand 10,000 people a day if we keep doing what we're doing. And I've touched on some of this in our discussion, and I cover a lot more of it in the book, of course, because I do think you have to be constructive. If you're gonna write a book, it's easy to say what the problems are and predict doom and gloom, but there's also usually a way out and we've got a way out, but you really have to stop doing what we're doing, which would be very helpful. And that is, as I said, stop funding the Chinese Communist Party, both financially and in terms of business investment, We've got to rebuild our own economy, our own manufacturing capabilities. I'm old enough. I don't think you're old enough, but I remember how it was before we thought we had to move all of our, so much of our manufacturing, so much of our business to China. Uh, We had a pretty good country uh, despite that, and we could do it again if we had a mind to, but it's going to take Congress to wake up and actually, I think, force Wall Street and American business to remember whose country's name is printed on their passports. So it will take some force. Also, stop spending like drunken sailors. If we are going to debase the U.S. currency just with this out-of-control spending, even by out-of-control spending standards, this is bad, that you are getting rid of the U.S. dollar as the really what is the last real club that we have against the Chinese because they are so dependent on it. And we're just weakening that almost by the day. You have got to get your finances under control. You cannot survive when, additionally, when a country starts to see itself as warring tribes, you know, where one side has something that the other side should have. When you have, I would say, the kind of political just animosity that we've got where half the country sees the other half as complete idiots, and one half of those thinks the other half should be destroyed because they're evil. A country will not survive that. And that doesn't take a whole lot of brilliance to understand that. Look at the Balkans. Look at the Yugoslavia. Look at Yugoslavia. You know, name a place where people are no longer see themselves as Americans or what have you, but see themselves, as I said, as warring tribes. That has somehow that has got to change. The U.S. military itself, it is going to have to rebuild itself with the right numbers, the right kinds of weapons that it needs to actually fight the Chinese and, if necessary, sink the Chinese Navy in an afternoon. Uh, it's not at that not at that stage yet by any means. I think the military cannot be a 
sort of a platform for social experimentation, as some people think it ought to be. It has one purpose, and that's to destroy America's enemies. It's all any military has been been for. So you'll see I mentioned the military part actually last. It's more important that we get the, you know, say, that financial, the economic lifeline that we have given the Chinese. We've got to stop that and devote it to America. Just say, so if you just stop this, it's going to set the Chinese back a long ways. Things like the CHIPS Act that President Biden passed, it's not perfect. Sure, it has loopholes, but it's a step in the right direction, shows what can be done. And as I said, get your financial house in order and get the, you know, so America somehow got to stop you know, so seeing each other as enemies. And you've got to get some control over your borders. If you don't do those things, you really cannot expect to prevail. I don't know that you could expect the military to save your bacon if we won't do those other things as well. But it's also going to take America to realize that we face a threat that just might defeat us. And if it does, it is going to affect is going to affect every one of us in a way that we don't like. And that's something new, the idea that America could lose. But also remember that we are the United States, and there's a huge psychological aspect of this, that we're an idea. And that's why people are literally dying to get into the United States. China doesn't have an illegal immigration problem, and there's a reason for that. It's this freedom that we stand for. And it is this needs to be one recognized as something that is not you cannot take it for granted and it is easily lost. You mentioned President Reagan and he's you know, was very articulate on this point that it's not hard for freedom to disappear uh, in an afternoon. So those are some of the things that that you need to do and that would give us a sort of a fighting chance. And I said the good fortunate thing is if you just got to stop building up your enemy and recognize it for what it is. And if you do that, you're kind of like a drunk who stops drinking somehow. He suddenly starts to get a whole lot better just by not doing things that he's been doing, these self-destructive things. Real quickly, what are some of the Chinese news websites that we ought to be reading every day that you mentioned that we should look at? I, and I say, I really do recommend it because they, you'll see this is not what a friend, these are not the things a friend says. You can get China Daily, uh, Xinhua, X-I-N-H-U-A, People's Daily, Global Times. And Global Times is it's the most ferocious of all of these. And people say, well, it's just some nutty Chinese guy. And the Chinese system, if you say something the central government doesn't want you to say, there is no upside. You will find yourself at best disappeared. At worst, you'll be gone with your organs removed. And so those four will give you a, a pretty good sense of things. And say so they do, they publish in English. And it's an eye opener. It's surprising that just how easy the Chinese make it to understand what they're going to do. There's also something, if you look it up on the internet, it's, I believe it's called Document 9. And it's a speech which Xi Jinping gave around 2013. It was shortly after he took over. And he gave this speech at the same time the New York Times was saying that he's going to be a reformer. <laughs> once he has control, he's going to liberalize China. Read Document 9. And this is where he lays out how the Chinese, the Chinese system cannot abide the American one, and it is an enemy that they're going to get. Another thing worth reading, if you, I think you have some readers who, re, listeners who read. Absolutely. Uh, there's Matt Pottinger, formerly with, who handled China policy uh, for the Trump administration, was excellent. He wrote a piece with John Pomfret, who used to be a China reporter for many years. It was with the Washington Post, very well respected. They wrote a piece recently saying that China is getting ready for war. 
and they look at the things China has said. Those are, that's worth reading as well. And you read this stuff, and I wish the Chinese would just go away and leave us alone. But it's unfortunately, I don't think they are. So I, yeah, I want to have to fight them probably less than anyone. But the only thing worse than having to fight a war is losing one. Yeah. Osama bin Laden was a lot of things, but he wasn't a liar. <laughs> Same with Vladimir Putin's liar, but he told us exactly what he wanted and was going to do for years. So I think it's interesting point. Really appreciate the conversation. The book is When China Attacks, A Warning to America. Where else should people follow you? Do you have a website? Do you tweet? What? How should we keep in constant contact with you? Oh, my goodness. I, I do tweet. I have. It's called at Newsham Grant. Uh, I do have a website. I think it's www.grantnewsham.com. And it, it links to, for now, it links to pretty much everything I write, because I do write regularly and try to I try not to be the 20th guy writing about something, but rather to find some angle that hasn't been covered and that adds to people's understanding of these, particularly the Asian defense and Asian security and economic issues as well. But that'll get you in the ballpark. And also, everything I write is also on the Center for Security Policy website, but not too hard to find. Excellent. Again, we'll link the book, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. Just take a look at the table of comment contents on the Amazon preview, and you'll see the di many different angles that uh, the colonel comes at it. Thank you so much for your time. We really pretty appreciated the conversation. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. And once again, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, listener, for listening to this episode. We really do appreciate it. If you learned something, if you found it interesting, then the best thing you can do is please share it. That helps author Colonel Grant Newsham. That helps me, and it helps your friends. So please share that with everyone. Thank you so much, and we'll see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show.